Hallelujah, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Hallelujah. You may be seated. That is our prayer this morning of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. So we have much to celebrate this Easter morning, and I do hope that you will celebrate today. But what is it that we celebrate? Well, we're not celebrating bunnies or candy-filled eggs, though I know bunnies are cute and the contents of those eggs are quite delicious at times, or lucrative, depending on which family you are a part of. Rather, we celebrate the victory of God through King Jesus over death, the devil, and the forces of darkness that held this world captive. Though still active, they are defeated foes because of the cross and the resurrection. Christ is risen. So therefore, on this day, we celebrate without restraint. We mentioned if you were here for Good Friday, Good Friday, the, the tone the, of Good Friday, the mood of Good Friday is restrained joy. Because the cross cannot be seen. We cannot see the cross apart from the resurrection now. It is never to us just an instrument of death, but always one of victory. And so we come this morning no longer restrained to true and abundant joy as we celebrate the defeat of these forces, the defeat of death, the defeat of the devil, and the triumph of God in Jesus. And with joy we long and look for the time when Jesus' resurrection will spill over and fill all of creation, reinvigorating and re-energizing it, transforming it into new creation where heaven and earth are eternally joined together in life-giving harmony. Those are the pictures that we see at the end of Scripture and Revelation. So, Christians, Christ Church, uncork a good bottle of wine or a bottle of bourbon or whatever you like and celebrate. You are commanded to. Prepare, cook, and eat your best food and share these good gifts with others in celebration of our risen and triumphant King. Not only this day, this is what I love about the church. We have 50 days of celebrating. You know, for us, New Year's, the, the, the resolutions about losing weight begin in ordinary time. Okay, for us, for the next 50 days, we celebrate. We give ourselves over to joy and celebration. Such celebration and merriment and revelry is your obligatory, obligatory Christian service and duty. Celebrate it in such a way over the next 50 days that your neighbors will want to join in. At least they'll want to be curious. Indeed, invite them to come join you and tell them why you are feasting, why you are celebrating. Tell them the reason for the hope and the joy that is in you. Alleluia, Christ is risen. Okay, so the sermon now begins. <clears throat> Seriously, that was our public service announcement for this morning. That is now concluded. And if you will, turn with me into your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 51. Forgive me, my voice is starting to, to leave. <clears throat> we love underdog stories, don't we? I must have been seven years old or so when... My dad and I watched the Mike Tyson-Buster Douglas uh, championship fight. You might remember this. I think it was like seven years old. 
I can remember going to the paper, the place where you used to go and pick up pay-per-view boxes, and I'm sounding old, and bring them back uh, to your house to watch these kind of things. At the time, Tyson was the undefeated heavyweight champion of the world and appeared to be invincible. No one could touch him. No one could last a fight with him. And Douglas was a huge underdog. The odds were 42 to 1 in Tyson's favor. No one expected Douglas to last a fight, much less win it, and not one person. I can't imagine there was one person. I don't even know if Douglas himself thought this, that he could knock Tyson out. Yet after being knocked down by Tyson for a nine counts, right? Ten, if you don't know boxing, ten counts, you're out. Douglas was knocked down by Tyson in the eighth round for nine counts, but he gets up. And in the tenth round, Douglas devastatingly knocks Tyson out. Knocks him out. Ten count, TKO, Tyson is done. It was an amazing underdog moment. And we love these types of stories. David and Goliath, Rudy, Rocky, Hoosiers, remember the Titans, Kung Fu Panda. We <laughs> love these types of stories. You can just name the story, whether in sports or movies or business, politics or everyday life. We love underdog stories. Yet the underdog stories so prevalent in our culture are those that typically emphasize someone turning within themselves and finding some hidden reserve of strength or some force of will that's just left untapped within themselves that enables them to triumph over remarkable odds. Yet Israel's cry for God's assistance in Isaiah chapter 51 verses 9 through 11 challenges these types of underdog stories. Their cry reveals that underdog stories have limits, real limits in a real world because we have limits. These stories can only take us so far. In Isaiah 51, Israel knew all too well that the circumstances and opponents they faced were too much for their own strength. There was, no, there was not going to be an underdog story here. Not in their own strength. Not if they turned inward. They were outmatched, outgunned, outmanned. And does Israel fit the, the stereotype of an underdog? Yeah, they were small, they were insignificant, they were beaten down. They fit the stereotype. We should expect them to rise up at least. That would make a wonderful story. But they had already turned to themselves before, to their own strength, little as it was, to face the difficult circumstances of life in the promised land of God, and they were fully aware of the consequences for doing so. That's why they were in exile, under the thumb of the Babylonians or the Assyrians. And so now at their lowest point, they turn outside of themselves to God and they cry out for him to wake up in verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord, awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. The audacity of God, where are you at? Wake up. Aren't you asleep? Israel expresses here the cry of the underdog who is overwhelmed by the sheer enormity of the circumstances of life and comes to the realization that they cannot, they cannot change these circumstances by turning within themselves. So what do they do? They cry out, awake, awake. To them in exile, it appeared that God had abandoned them and his covenant promises. And with their cry, they hope to rouse God from slumber in the same way that we might suddenly wake up early in the morning uh, with some thing like nagging thing in the back of mind that we've forgotten, a duty that we forgot, 
No, we rush to get up and see if that's really something. Check our phones. Do I have to have the kids somewhere? Do I need to be somewhere right now? They're hoping for God to rouse from slumber in that way. They wanted him to remember them and his promises and to roll out of bed and with urgency come to their aid. In their cry, they desire God to remember his past acts of redemption when their ancestors faced circumstances beyond their power. When they were outmatched and outgunned and overwhelmed, So they called upon God to exercise his power displayed at the creation of the world and at Israel's exodus from Egypt when he led them through the sea, the Red Sea, on dry ground. Just listen there to the second half of verse 9 and verse 10. Was it not you, this is them addressing God, was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? That's a reference to a particular understanding of creation that we see in the Psalms of like God creates the world through combat. Was it not you who destroyed the sea monster? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? That's the exodus. They called upon God to perform again one of his great redemptive acts of reversal. They desired God to make a new way for the redeemed a new way for them to leave exile and to come home. And their cry wasn't just some wishy-washy one, it was a confident one. Their cry was a confident one. Notice that in verse 11, everything is stated as if redemption was a foregone conclusion. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. We have returned to Zion this morning with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Doesn't that sound like something else? Doesn't that sound like the end of the story? When death has been banished, when mourning and crying and tears have been all banished from the kingdom of God, and all that is left is joy and gladness and praise and thanksgiving. They were confident that God would come to their aid and that he would restore them as he had done before in ages past. And not only that, but the language of everlasting joy and the removal of sorrow ultimately expresses Israel's eschatological hope. That is, their hope that one day, in this this future world, one day God would right all wrongs and restore and renew not only Israel but the entire cosmos the entire world, that he would even raise the dead. And we're here this Easter Sunday morning because God has answered that cry. He answered that cry by sending his son Jesus in the most unexpected way. If you remember several weeks ago, we were reading from Isaiah 43, and God said, forget the past acts I've done. I'm going to do a new thing that will blow your mind. If you dwell on the past acts of creation and redemption of the Exodus, you will not see what I am going to do. You will not recognize it. I'm doing something new. New. And that is what he has done in Jesus by sending him his son, God the Son, to take on human flesh, to be enfleshed 
in human weakness, to live our lives, to, to enter into our underdog stories that were hopeless, and to transform them into true underdog stories, one where we are pulled outside of ourselves to God, to trust, to cry out, that no doubt we hear, even hear Jesus doing in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you can even imagine that this, that this cry here in Isaiah 51 fueled or was a part of what Jesus was crying out when he descended to the dead. Awake, awake, O arm of the Lord, strong arm of the Lord, save me from here. Because it is God the Father's power that raises Jesus from the dead, as Paul clearly states in Ephesians 1. So we're here this Easter Sunday morning because God has answered that cry of Israel. He's answered that cry of Jesus. He's answered that cry in your life. And we've all been in that place where we've had that cry. Where the heck are you, God? Awake, awake. Come, come with your strong arm. Come with your resurrection power and restore, renew. In truth, though, our stories never really work out like underdog stories, do they? When we kind of trust in ourselves, we eventually meet our limits. We do. We come to find out that in this world there are circumstances beyond our control and beyond our strength to handle them, death being the chief among them. Yet this doesn't mean that we're not a part of an underdog story or that ours cannot be redeemed. You see, God answered Israel's cry by sending Jesus to take on human flesh so that he might enter our sin-filled, broken stories, which always, end in, which always end in death when we are the ones governing them. Always end in death in order to lead us into his story, into his death, but also into his glorious resurrection and indeed into new creation life. When we are joined to Jesus' story, to his death and resurrection, we are joined to the greatest underdog story of all, where death is defeated, the devil is subdued, and his house plundered, and where the forces of darkness are laid bare. They are exposed for the frauds that they are. We are joined to life. We are joined to life. The very Life of God, the life that gives birth to life on this earth. We're joined to life. At Jesus' resurrection, God poured out his power to make all things new on the body of Jesus. His body, Jesus' very real, very human body, is that first piece of this old creation to be renewed and restored. How can we be confident like Israel? We have more to be confident, more reason to be confident than Israel. Because a part of this old creation in Jesus' body has actually been renewed. New creation is actually here. And Jesus takes in his ascension, he takes that renewed part of this old creation and he goes to heaven. That's a down payment, a guarantee that one day God will do that in full in your life and throughout this world. And he does what? He sends a part of heaven as our guarantee. The spirit of God to indwell us. New creation is here. It's among you. Paul can say you are a new creation. 
You get to participate even now in these new resurrection realities right here in this moment in time. And because as Christians we are joined to his story right now, because we are so thoroughly united to him right now, all the benefits of his cross and resurrection are ours. They're our birthright. We've gone through the waters of baptism. They are ours by birthright, by a right of adoption. They belong to us. We have access now by his spirit who dwells in us to the power of God to make all things new. That is power to transform death into life. Alienation into reconciliation, guilt into righteousness, shame into honor, sorrow and mourning into joy and gladness, loneliness into belonging, hate into love, and we could go on and on. The cross and the resurrection reverse all that has gone wrong in this world. God is indeed making all things right. And so we can join our voices together this morning and say, Hallelujah! Christ is risen. The Lord, Lord is This morning, if Jesus' story isn't yours, it can be. He freely invites all, everyone, you, to enter into his story of death and new life, of joy and gladness. And in his story, you will find true and everlasting peace and joy. You will find physical, emotional, spiritual, and relational healing, what you have never been able to produce in your own power. And you can enter Jesus' story, his death and resurrection, by turning away from self-directed living, by turning away from turning inward, and turning to him in faith, however small, however imperfect, and crying out like Israel, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord, and come to my aid. I need your forgiveness, for I have been following my own ways, and I desire to follow your way. I want to live in your story. Give me this resurrection life. This morning, many of us have already turned to Jesus through faith and repentance and have been baptized into his death and resurrection. His story is our story. His life is our life. His resurrection is our resurrection. Yet we're facing circumstances beyond our ability to control or overcome. Our underdog stories are falling apart. This might be through the breaking or, the, or a broken relationship or marriage, a besetting sin that you never quite overcome, a deep emotional wound that never seems to heal, circumstances that seem impossible to bear. Whatever it may be that is weighing on you, you can cry out to God like Israel, like Jesus no doubt did. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord, and come to my aid. I cannot do this on my own or under my own strength. I need you. Pour out your power on me in this situation. Pour out that same power that raised Jesus from the dead and grant to me and others new creation life, resurrection life in this situation. And like Israel, we can cry out to God this morning in confidence that he will answer because we can look back, like we're doing this morning, remembering we can look back at his ultimate act of redemption for assurance. That one, that the one we celebrate with unrestrained joy today and for the next 50 days, that this one has indeed triumphed. 
And so we can come to all these things that we have spoken of already, and we can come to them with joy and confidence, knowing that our God reigns through Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. 